good morning, Harrison Bridge. Hope you guys have had an awesome weekend so far. I don't know about you, but this is a wonderful way to start off a Sunday. Number one, seeing some concrete out there, but then number two, getting to see some baptisms today. No better way, in my opinion, to join together in worship. As Chuck said, we're continuing with our series through Acts this morning. We've got a couple more weeks in the book as we begin to wrap it up at the end of June. If you haven't been with us, we've been looking at Acts through a big picture lens. Not necessarily every verse, every chapter, but a majority of them. And today, as we look towards Acts 20, here's what we are going to see. We are going to see the blueprint of a legacy of a life well lived. To put it another way, we will see a life that we should emulate as followers of Jesus And so the question that's really on the table for us here today is how do I leave a legacy of a sent life? When we think about legacy, a lot of times we think about uh, end of life stuff. You know, for me, I'll give you a a quick uh, example. So some of you know my story. You know, I was a history major in college, which means I'm a history geek now. Like for fun at night to go to bed, I read uh, about World War II history because I find that entertaining. And so I'm reading An Army at Dawn about the invasion of North Africa and Operation Torch in 1942. But one of the cool things that really uh, coincided with this past week was that Operation Torch was really a catalyst for us to have a successful invasion. It's where we learned how to invade from a sea to a land type thing. And so if you were paying attention this past week, you would have realized, as I realized, that we had the anniversary of D-Day, right? The invasion on Normandy beaches there. And it brings to mind one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Saving Private Ryan. The adults in my life took me to see that movie when I was in like sixth grade. I have no idea what they were thinking. But the middle school me loved that movie. And it quickly became one of my favorites. But there's this scene, if you've ever seen it, goes through the invasion, goes through the mission, and it gets to the end of the movie where there's an older guy. He's sitting there in Arlington. He's kneeling down at a cross. And he's, his eyes are welling up with tears. And he looks at his wife and he says, he asks her this question. He says, tell me that I've lived a life. Have I lived a life worthy of the sacrifice? And he's talking about legacy there, right? And a lot of times we think legacy as end of life or as I round that fourth turn and and really close the chapter on my book of life. But I would submit to you here today that legacy should be thought of at any age range of life. You know, when we think of legacy as well, we often think of people that we want to emulate. My childhood walls were filled with Greg Maddox. 1990 Gamecock football poster and Michael Jordan, all who I thought were the legacies I needed to follow in my life. Obviously, that has not happened. Also, yesterday, give you a more contemporary example. I was sitting in our playroom floor, and my purpose then, my legacy, was to be Bowser to my four-year-old little girl as we reenacted the whole Mario movie with princesses and Barbies, right? In that moment, that was the legacy I was leaving, But at the end of the day, that's just a fleeting thing about that legacy is maybe you'll come to find if you haven't already, when we think of legacy and we think of leaving a life of accomplishments or accolades or career achievements or a good name for my family or a better life for my kids or grandkids or whatever it may be, as good as those things are, that is not the legacy that you and I are created to live for. 
Rather, what we see from Acts 20 today is that Paul addresses these, this group of people we call the Ephesian elders. They're sitting in the region of Asia, and he's giving them his last will and testament. And what we see in this last will and testament as he prepares to leave them is this, that he gives us the blueprint to a legacy of being sent. And that's really what the whole book of Acts is about, being sent. That's why we call the series Sent. Why? Because from Acts 1-8 onward, you see the call for every follower of Jesus to live life on mission. This is why Jesus says in Acts 1-8, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Wherever you find yourself, if you're a follower of Christ and you ask the question, what does it look like to live a legacy of a sent life? It's to live out Acts 1-8. And this is what Paul alludes to and points to in Acts 20. His legacy is driven by his purpose. And here's what I've come to understand about purpose. Maybe you have too. What my purpose is convictionally is where I'll be committed missionally. It's one thing to say I'm living for this, but it's another thing convictionally to actually live that out. Wherever, whatever moves my heart, whatever makes my ticker tick, that is where I will find myself spending my efforts, my time, my money, and resources. And what we'll come to find here today as we look at Acts 20 is this. The sent life for Jesus leaves a legacy that is unrivaled. Anything else in this world pales in comparison to that. So before we look at our text, just one question. Is what I'm living for worthy of the legacy that I want to leave? Look with me. Chapter 20, verse 18. Paul's standing on the beach here at Miletus. We'll read a few verses and unpack them and do the same thing throughout the rest of the passage. But verse 18, he says this to the Ephesian elders. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that, one, his time is going to be drawing to a close. He'll allude to this more in the next few verses. And so he's looking at these guys that are standing on the beach. And as we said, he's leaving essentially his last will and testament. He believes that this will be the last time he will see them. Some scholars say he sees them later on. But at this moment, there is no anticipation that he will ever see them again. We'll hear that in just a moment. And so really his last will and testament, his, his last passage to them, if you will, his last speech breaks up into three parts. This first part here is focusing in on his time that he has spent with them. When we talk about a blueprint of a life that is sent, of a legacy of being sent, he looks back and he's able to point to his faithfulness there. Notice, he points out to him, he says, you know how I lived among you the whole time in Asia. Now we know this time period here, he'll say it later on, is three years. So he's referencing his three years in the region of Asia. What did he do there? He served the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that he faced. So what he's making clear of here is that his time has been an especially trying time. This has not been a walk in the park. This has not been rainbows and sunshine. But what he is saying is, as I have sought to live out the gospel, I have faced opposition. And this is the name of the game in the book of Acts. Every time, and we've noted this multiple times, every time you see the gospel advance, every time you see people being saved, you see opposition arising there. And so it should not surprise us, even in our world today, when we seek to be faithful to advance the gospel, opposition will crop up there. 
It should not catch us by surprise. And he says, even through the opposition, even through the trials, even through the suffering, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And so what Paul says was, I did not use this as an excuse to take my foot off the gas. I did not use this as an excuse to say, well, let's wrap it up and go on home, boys, because there's opposition here. No, what he says is, even despite the opposition, I was faithful to proclaim the gospel. You see, he wasn't just content just to be a good man and live a good life in a region that didn't know Jesus. And maybe somehow they'll figure out that he's following Jesus. No, he says, verbally I proclaimed, whether in public or house to house, I was faithfully preaching Jesus. And so as he looks back at his time, we, we see these hallmarks here of consistency. We see a purpose and we see that he has concern for people. We'll talk about those in a minute. But what he points to us here in this first part is this. That no matter the situation, he was faithfully proclaiming Jesus. Whether on the mountaintops, in the houses, or in public, he was proclaiming Jesus. And note this about going house to house. We often think that we need a big event for Jesus to move. And don't get me wrong, I'm a student pastor. I love events, right? We had our biggest event this year uh, ever, Reckless uh, Weekend. We had 360 students. It was an amazing weekend. And we saw Jesus move and students saved and praise God for that. But you want to know how we saw Jesus move in even bigger ways? It's more of those house-to-house individual conversations that followed Reckless Weekend. That's how we see lives change. So I would imagine if we ask Paul, which was the more effective ministry, teaching in public or house to house? It's the house to house. How are lives changed? One conversation at a time there. So we see this looking back at a legacy, and it leads us to the next verse here. Verse 22 begins to look forward in his own life. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So he looks back, and now he begins to look forward here. But not necessarily for the Ephesian elders, that's next. But he looks forward for himself. And what's happening in his life is his calling is remaining the same as we said at the beginning. The calling for every single Christian is to be a witness for Jesus no matter your location. But his mission outpost, his mission context is changing. So as a Christian, we need to understand this. I am called to live for Jesus, but my location and my context can and probably will change at some point. And Paul here, his is changing. But notice, he's not being called to take a furlough and to take it easy for a few months. But rather, the Holy Spirit has testified to him in every city he will go to. Imprisonment and afflictions await him. So think about this in your own life. If the Holy Spirit came to you and said, you've been doing great following Jesus here in Simpsonville, but I'm going to lead you to a few other places. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you're going to suffer and be in prison for Jesus. How would you respond to that? Now, we can give the Christian answer. Oh, I would do it. I would do it. Let's just be honest, though, right? I'd be like, you're talking to the guy down the street. Right? I don't want to face imprisonment. I don't want to face affliction. Neither does Paul. That's not his wish. He doesn't have a death wish. But notice why he willingly walks into this next stop of suffering. Here's why. Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. 
He says, at the end of the day, my life is immaterial. Why? Because I just want Christ magnified. At the end of the day, where a world tells us that my life is so valuable and that my life and my priorities matter the most, the Bible says, in fact, the opposite. While you are valuable, it is Christ that is to be magnified, no matter the circumstance in our world, in our lives. This is why Paul can say, hey, even if imprisonment and afflictions await me, I'm still leaning in with Jesus. Christ to be magnified was the purpose of his life. And he looks at the Ephesian elders and he says, hey, I'm probably never going to see you again. And so as he looks forward, he sees nothing but suffering, pain, and imprisonment. But yet he walks through it faithfully. Why? Because Christ is bigger than any circumstance he can face. Picking up again, verse 26, he begins to speak to the Ephesian elders now and talk about their future. He says, therefore, I test to you this day, testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So as he addresses the elders here, the final leg of his speech to them, he focuses in on their future. And he says a few things. Number one, I'm innocent of the blood of all. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, he's actually looking back to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, a prophet in the Old Testament, speaks of being a watchman. And so what he would be thinking of in this Old Testament text is that there's a watchman on the tower looking out for any danger, anything the people needed to be alerted to. And if the watchman was going to be faithful to the call of his life, he would see something and he would call out and ready the people. Whether the people got ready or not, that was on them. But the watchman's responsibility was to alert the people to what was about to happen. Paul is doing this from a spiritual standpoint, has done this from a spiritual standpoint. For three years, he has been that watchman on the tower calling out that they need to repent and turn to Jesus. Now, whether they do or not, that's between them and God. But Paul has been faithful in his ministry day and night to proclaim that they have a Jesus that they need to follow. And then he turns his attention to how these elders need to prepare themselves. Verse 28, he says, pay attention. Notice what he says first. It's not the flock. It's not the church. Pay attention to yourselves. Here's the thing. If we are going to withstand opposition as a people of God, as a people of Jesus... Yes, the flock and the church matter, and it matters highly. We see, Paul says, this is a, a flock, a church that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. It is highly valued. It is the bride of Christ, and therefore, we should value it as such. 
But if we're going to lead the flock and protect the flock well, I have to take care of myself first. Right? It's the, the old airport uh, safety talk, right? What do you do if the plane's getting ready to crash? Do I put my child's mask on first? No, I put mine on first so I don't pass out putting hers on first. Right? I take care of myself spiritually first. So before, even as a teaching pastor, I can even begin to take care of you. I have to make sure that I am fed in the word of God. I have to make sure that I am taken care of in my walk with Jesus. I have to spend intentional time. It's not just for the leaders of the campus. It is for every Christian that we pay careful attention to our walk with Jesus, walking with him regularly and, dare I say, daily in our lives. It is only then that we can begin to pay attention to the flock for the opposition that is coming. And in Paul's mind, it is already there. The opposition that is coming will not just be some passing thing, but we hear him reference fierce wolves that will come in. They will not spare the flock. And not only that, but there will be opposition from within that will arise. Think about that. How discouraging that can be, right? We understand that there's opposition in a broken world that will come for those who follow a sinless Savior. But for that opposition to arise from within, man, that can be so discouraging sometimes, if we're just honest. And so what do we do with it? We prepare ourselves and we prepare the flock to withstand the opposition and faithfully proclaim Jesus, no matter the situation. Paul says, I've done as much, verse 31, therefore be alert. Remember how I did it, three years, did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It wasn't easy. To walk with Jesus, if we expect it to be all rainbows and sunshine, we're sorely mistaken. Jesus makes it clear to follow after him, as he says in Mark, is to take up our own cross, to deny ourselves. To lay down the comforts of this world, if you will. This is the call of the Christian life in a broken world. Yes, better times are coming. Yes, I, I want some of those better times now. But I should expect opposition when I live out the call of Jesus faithfully. And as he closes up his time here, he reminds them at the heart of it all is a love for others. This is why he ends with the words from Jesus. is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of his purpose, at the heart of what Paul was basing his life on, was that he had come to know the love of Jesus, that it exponentially changed his world, and he was called to live that love out. This is why all over the New Testament especially, we see the picture that Christians are to be known as, as ones who love. That is our hallmark. We are to be known as a people who love, not who long for a fight, not who love division, not who love disunity. We are to be a people who love as Christ has loved us. This is supposed to be our hallmark here. And that love that Christ models for us is a love that isn't the flavor of the week when that our culture blows here and there. It is a love that is based in giving rather than receiving because our Savior has modeled it for us. And so Paul gives them the blueprint. What has happened in his life, what's going to happen, and what's going to happen in their lives. Now what we know from history is this. They may have walked this out faithfully for a time, but within two centuries, these churches in Asia, they would become a seedbed for heresy, as one scholar says it. That is, they went off the rails. And it's crazy to see how, how fruitful a work this man can put in for three years. 
and address the, the Ephesian elders in such an encouraging way and lay out the plan for them. And maybe in their lives, they live the life of legacy, of living out the sent word. But somewhere along the lines, their kids, grandkids, great-grandkids stop living it out. And two centuries later, the churches aren't faithful to the call of Jesus. So the question becomes here today, what exactly is that blueprint for me? If I'm going to have a legacy that's worthy of something beyond this life, what does it look like? Well, glad you asked. Three, three things for you. First point is this. We have a certainty of purpose. We have a certainty of purpose. Ask yourself this question. When Paul is called to leave the suffering of Ephesus for more suffering in Jerusalem, how is he able to do so? Right? At some point, I would have tapped out. At some point, I'd be like, Jesus, I'm good. You know, give it to somebody else. Give it to somebody who's fresh. Well, why do I have to keep facing this? Right? That's the, the fleshly temptation there. But Paul's willing to face opposition and jail even, and we know later on, death. Why? Because he has a certainty of purpose, which is why he testifies in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as, any, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received. At the end of the day, a life lived for Jesus is far more important to Paul than a life held just in terms of what he can get from this world. At the end of the day, a life lived for Jesus is far more important than Paul's own selfish priorities. His certainty of purpose drives everything about him. As we said, I, when I have a conviction of purpose, it will drive my mission, good or bad. For Paul here, he's a certainty that he knows who he is, and therefore he's willing to face anything and anyone in terms of opposition to make sure that Christ is proclaimed here. I was with some athletes this week. We're doing some leadership program stuff, and I told them, I said, First meeting I always do. We talk about our why. Simon Sanu has a great secular book called Know Your Why. And I was sitting there and I was talking to him. I said, listen, this sport's going to end one day. It's going to end. And sooner or later, you have to come to the conclusion that I've got to find something bigger than myself. And I, I don't know about you guys. But the only thing I found worthy of getting me out of bed every morning, giving me something to live for beyond the grave is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's that certainty that he has changed my here and now and my eternity and nobody else comes close to that. And that even as I, I may have a purpose as a dad and as a husband and as a teaching pastor, what trumps all of those purposes is that I want a life that is singularly focused on Jesus and living for him. Paul can speak with confidence here because of how he's lived out a certain purpose. Can I say the same? If I had to say goodbye like Paul did, could I say the same words? Life or death was not the issue for Paul, but Christ being magnified was the issue, is what one scholar said. When it comes to my purpose, who's calling the shots? And are they worthy to be calling the shots? Leads us to the second point, consistency in practice. I think we, we get the first point. Like, a lot of us in here, as, as followers of Jesus especially, okay, we understand that our purpose is grounded and rooted in our Savior, and Amen. But this is where I think the temptation comes in play, where a lot of us, myself at the forefront, where I get tripped up. And it's inconsistency, because if you're like me, all it takes is a cursory glance around our culture, even in a local context, just be reminded that, man, we live in a world full of inconsistencies. 
We live in a world full of inconsistent peoples of whom I'm usually the chief among them. Right? I, I live this even in a faith context as well. As I, I look out among faith heroes and listen, as a millennial pastor, it has been a hallmark. And I shouldn't even say a hallmark. It's been a mark of my ministry literally almost to assume about every other week. There's a pastor or a faith leader that I see fall that I see have a consistent ministry end in flames because of inconsistencies in their lives. And it's heartbreaking to see. And so when we talk about consistency, let's be honest, it's something all of our hearts long for. And if we're going to live out that purpose faithfully, consistency is required. Look here at Paul. He lives this out for three years. As we said, it's not rainbows and sunshine. It's oftentimes in the pit, in the suffering, in the mundane. House to house. Imagine doing that for three years. There's no fame, there's no glory, there's no getting your name on Twitter or going viral or this or that. It's simply you're toiling in obscurity, yet it is worth it because Jesus is worth it. Would that be worth it for you? At the end of the day, consistency wins the day for the gospel. You see, I can go and knock on a hundred doors today. And say, hey, you should know Jesus. But if I don't consistently live that out, when those people see me in and around, guess what? They'll say, that's a Jesus not worth following. You see, when I'm consistent in my home, when I'm consistent with my friends, when I'm consistent with my neighbors, as they water their lawn and I'm watering my lawn, and they are consistently seeing me interact with my family and my friends and work completely differently than anybody else, and they see me consistently speak about Jesus to them, they see a life that lives for something bigger than itself. Here's the question in this one. How am I consistently living out the gospel in my context? That's a question every single Christian needs to ask themselves regularly. The third point here is that Paul had a concern for people. We need to have a concern for people. We need to be certain of our purpose, whose we are. We need to be consistent in living it out day by day, faithfulness in our lives. And lastly, we need a concern for people. You'll notice here, Paul's getting ready to leave, and he could just as easily say, hey, I've suffered here for three years. Y'all are on your own. Maybe he doesn't say it like that. Maybe he's not as callous as that. But he could say, hey, I'm out. Y'all, good luck. Hope it works out for you. But he spends most of this passage preparing them for what's next. Why? Because he loves these people. There are intimate, deep relationships here. Why? Because Jesus has called him to such. Christians should have deep relationships like this, by the way. You hear his heart with the church elders. He's so concerned about them. Take care. Be alert. Watch out. Prepare yourselves. Even despite the obstacles and opposition that he has faced in this place for three years, he longs for them to be built up in Jesus. I don't know about you, but for me, when I face opposition in a certain context or in any context, my temptation is often to demonize people, to dehumanize people. Oh, well, I, I just won't give it my all there. Oh, well, I'm going to go find somebody that actually likes what I'm saying over here. And that's the temptation in the flesh. That, that when I face opposition, well, I don't really care about those people anyway. And I'm often reminded, but Christ cares about those people. So I should care about those people. The concern for people is all over this passage. Here's the question with this one. Is my concern for people bigger than the obstacles and situations that I'm facing? 
Is my concern for people's spirituality and knowing Jesus bigger than the situation that I'm in? This is the blueprint Paul gives us here. So what do we do with this? We see the blueprint there. If I'm not a Christian here today, here's the question for you. What is your purpose in life? What legacy are you building? We're all building a legacy, good or bad. We are all building a legacy we will leave behind. Is it something that is going to outlive you? And and if you're not a Christian here, allow me to be blunt in a loving way. Whatever you are building, as I said the other week, it's a house of cards. And it will fall down. And it will be a legacy that will be left here on earth and will not last you beyond the grave. Somebody may remember your name here or there, but it will not have a lasting eternal impact. So what do you do? You ask the question, how do I find a legacy like that? And one, start the conversation. Find me in the hallway. Elise is down here. Our other staff are around. We would love to start that conversation with you today. To tell you about the legacy that you were always meant to live and build for. To tell you about the life that you were created for, the purpose the consistency and the concern that Christ can give you in a changed life here today. Your heart longs for it, if you're honest with yourself. Start that conversation today. For the followers of Jesus in here, allow me, and I know this is dangerous territory, anytime a preacher starts talking about age ranges, because undoubtedly I overestimate what someone's age is or underestimate what someone's age is, and somebody gets offended, so y'all give me a pass here. But as I was thinking about this message, and and I primarily work with students before taking this on, uh, I started thinking about our teenagers and how we think about legacy with them. And so then it really snowballed into just different age ranges here. And so here's some questions that I wrote for each age range in light of this passage, in light of giving a blueprint of a legacy, a life worth living sent. And here's what I put for teenagers and children that are sitting in this room. Where the world tells you, you do you. You seek the best for yourself. You climb that mountain. You get the accolades. You get the accomplishment. You get the scholarship. You get the spot at the D1 level. You go up that ladder. You climb that ladder. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's here's the question. And it's one I had to answer in my high school years that I didn't answer well. Is Jesus big enough to determine my steps even if it means changing my steps in my career path or dreams. Now, your mom and daddy may not be happy. Sorry, mom and dad. But you'll find that when I'm willing to lay my dreams on the table and say, Jesus, you do whatever you want with them, that is a life that is fully satisfied in him and a life that is building a legacy. For the young adults in the room, maybe singles, 20s, whatever that age range may be for you, Am I willing to live radically different because of Jesus than those close friends who are choosing the American dream? Because the phase of life that you're in right now says climb that ladder. Get the entry-level job. Work your way up. Work like a dog. Work obscene hours. Why? Because you got to climb the ladder. you got to get the dream. you got to get the house. you got to get whatever it is that this world tells you. And I believe this age group has the most flexibility, as I told the past two services, to go to the ends of the earth. Because you have that flexibility to go to the hard places and say, I'm not claiming the American dream. I'm claiming a life that will leave a legacy living Jesus out wherever he may call me. Even if it means suffering. Even if it means opposition. For the young families in the room, my, my age range here. This is one that's especially convicting for me. Because I know how easy it is for those of us with young kids 
to say, hey, Jesus is great and he's my priority, but I've got to pack schedule. But I've got to have these accolades for my family. But I've got to have this. I've got to have the relationships. I've got to have the social connections. I've got to be seen a certain way. Here's the question for us, myself. Am I willing to structure my family's priorities around Jesus being proclaimed in my home, my neighborhood, and beyond over comfort and lesser priorities? Am I willing to say, I'm not going to pack my schedule out? Am I willing to say, I'm not going to make what school my child gets into the highest priority in my life because I'm willing to say, Jesus, however you may use my life, use it. That is the priority in the Watson household. Lastly, for the retirees and empty nesters, I know it's a big age range there. For a second time, though, we'll combine them. Life tells you that you are rounding those final turns and that you have earned some rest. You have earned a time to take your foot off the gas. Physically, yes, please do that. You have earned it. But spiritually speaking, do the opposite. The world will tell you it's time to go to the beach, collect seashells, as John Piper says, to invest in all these frivolous ways and to eschew the mission of Jesus. So here's the question. Am I willing to stay engaged on mission for Jesus even as culture tells me that I've earned rest. I believe, coupled with teenagers, that both of these age groups have the most potential for impact to change the upset for Jesus. Why? Because if I'm a retiree or an empty nest or I'm heading that way, I have the most discretionary time available. I can invest like any, like, unlike any of the other age groups there. As Paul ended his talk, we'll land this plane here. He noted Jesus saying, it's better to give than receive. This is the epitome of the sent life. A sent life that leaves a legacy is a life that says, you before me because of Jesus. The sent life for Jesus leaves a legacy that is unrivaled, that finds no competitors with anything else you could pursue. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you are a God who sees us in our comfort, especially in the Western world, in our creature comforts, in our schedules, in our busyness. And you call us to something more, to a greater purpose, to a greater legacy, to one that is centered in you, Jesus. God, I pray for those who do not know you in this room, that you would call them to that purpose today. You would call them to you. They would repent of sin and turn to you. May they start that conversation today. For followers of Jesus, Lord, may we be willing to say, no matter what, no matter where, no matter how, Jesus, our life is yours. Use it however you will. May that be our legacy today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.